Again, we're going to be focusing in on Mark 1.14 this morning, and we're going to be doing it historically. I think it's essential for us to spend some time here focusing in on Jesus' first historic act of public compassion. That's what we'll see this morning in a brief snapshot. I believe it's essential for us to closely study Jesus' message and His method of ministry so that we can reflect His message and method as a gospel-driven church in our ministry, in our community. Mark tells us that a gospel-driven ministry has to focus on God's divine messenger, which would be Jesus in this text. It tells us that we must focus on God's divine method that Jesus exhibits in this text. And it tells us that we should focus on God's divine message that Jesus proclaims in this text that is unchanging. We do not need to change our message, the method, or anything else that the perfect messenger displayed to us here in this text. Now, I want to read the text this morning, and I'll just tell you this. We're going to be looking at more of a survey of the historical facts around this text than the text itself this morning, though we will approach verse 14 partially. Let me read the text to you from Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now... After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and put your trust in the good news from God about Christ. That's what we're told to do this morning. It's what Jesus proclaims in this text. And the first thing we should note in our text this morning is that, number one, the divine messenger is delivering to us a divine display of God's compassion. He's delivering divine compassion to sinners in verse 14. We know that He's going to Galilee a place of outcasts, and he's going there to deliver a message of God's grace. And secondly, we should note in our text that there is a divine method. There is a divine method, and that divine method declares God's salvation biblically to sinners. We should also focus in and notice that thirdly, there is a divine message. And that divine message demanded their attention, and it demands our attention as sinners as well today. And we see that in verse 15. Now, we have to remember that Jesus' message that He proclaims is the only one that God ever sent to sinners, the only one that God promised to bless. And this message must not be changed by us or anyone else. So we must learn from Jesus this morning. We must proclaim His message and learn from His methods And we can actually proclaim the same message that Jesus gives us here. We have to be careful to follow His method and His message in our ministry. We we must be careful as Christians, modern day Christians in our sense, of not following best-selling authors, but the greatest preacher. That's who we must follow. The greatest preacher who ever walked this earth was Jesus. He had perfect compassion. He had perfect 
oratory. He had perfect understanding. He was the one we should pattern our ministry after, not what's selling in Christianity. We have a perfect messenger. We have a perfect method. We have a perfect message. It all comes from God. And Jesus displays it to us. So we don't have any need for a psychologized, prepackaged, seeker-sensitive, culturally relevant message. Jesus cut through all the cultural issues and He got to the heart of man by exposing man to God's revelation of what He is like in His Word. By proclaiming truth about man's nature and about God's glory. And what we see today so often is we see books that are written on how to manipulate men, how to manage men in ministry. What we see in Jesus is declaration and proclamation about man's condition in God's glory. It's only God's message that promises to change our spiritual condition and glorify God. Only God's message can do that. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1. No other message is promised to do this. Therefore, we need to build our foundation on this message. Build our ministry and our methodology on this message. 1.18. I'll just say this. If you don't build on this, you are saying that this message is insufficient. If you think you have to manipulate men and add psychology into the ministry, you are saying that this is an insufficient message from God. Look what it says in one eighteen: For the word of the cross is folly, Word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we proclaim, we caruso, we, we declare, preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those, to those who are cultivated by God, to those who have been called, that's what he's going to say here, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is what we preach. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. If we believe that, we have been given a message that we know is divine. And it will be what we need to stand on when we go out and do our evangelization of this world. We need to stand firmly fixed on God's foundation right here. Christ and Him crucified. It is that which exposes the need in our heart. Jesus was crucified because of our sins. Therefore, we must declare to people that they are sinners. They are offenders of a holy and righteous God. Their sin demanded justice. It demanded wrath, and that wrath was poured out on Jesus. We must proclaim that in an unvarnished way with conviction and with compassion on the people we proclaim it to. We need a message that's so simple and so clear that any of us can actually proclaim it. And that's what we have in the gospel. Look what it says in 126 there in Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers. The very people he's saying that are called to preach this message. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. 
Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God has given us a message that we can boast in. And we don't boast in our ability or our intellect, but we boast in the revelation that was given to us by God's grace and God's Spirit here. And we can all proclaim this message. So this message isn't set aside for the spiritually elite It's not set aside for the professors. It's set aside for the not many noble, the not many strong in the world's eyes. So that means that this message is going to transcend culture and we can proclaim it with confidence. This message is built again on the foundation of Christ's perfect work. And there is no greater message that we are honored to proclaim as God's ambassadors than the finished work of Christ Jesus our Savior. It is our gift from God to be able to proclaim this message. We are being called as ambassadors of Christ to go into the world and give God's gift of compassion through the proclamation of Jesus Christ. That is your gift from God. You're called to do this. You're called to do it the way Jesus did it. You're not called to do it the way, again, contemporary Christianity says you ought to do it. By manipulating, by managing, by building long-term bridges that you can slip the gospel in a little at a time. No, you are to come in compassion toward those that are in sin and depravity and lovingly compel them to repent and believe in this message. And listen, if they see that you actually love them enough to do this and you're not condemning them, but you're walking with them in this process, they will listen. And they will actually believe you are convinced of this message. It is not just something you say you believe. You actually practice this. You actually believe there is a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. You actually believe that when Jesus said that if you do not repent, you will be severed from God's presence. You actually believe that. You actually believe and have compassion on the people that you proclaim it to. And I want that to be our testimony as a church. I don't want our testimony to be that we have the best programs and that we are the most culturally relevant. Listen, I think this message is culturally relevant. It transcends the culture and it speaks to the heart of man. That's why it's relevant to every culture. If we stand firm on that, we can adapt this message into every culture and never change a word of it. We are sensitive to the cultural differences. But we don't change our message because of it. For us to do this, we need to know the message. We need to know the history of Christ's own ministry. If we're going to do this accurately, if we're going to follow his pattern historically, we need to know something about what he did historically. So we'll see that this morning in Mark 1.14, but actually it'll be exposed even more so in John's Gospel. But let's go back to Mark 1.14 and let me read the text. In Mark 1, actually let's go to 1.9. Let's begin there and pick up the text so I can unpack the history that's actually not in this text this morning, but the history that's very pertinent to this text this morning. And what I want you to do is I want you to follow me and I want you to follow my cross-references today and take note of these. In verse 9, 
it, it speaks about Jesus coming out of the place where he grew up at and going to be baptized. Okay? And so it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now what you need to understand historically about Jesus and his life and ministry is 90% of Jesus' entire ministry was in Galilee. 90% of his life and ministry was spent in Galilee. And I believe that's the case because I believe God had cultivated the hearts and the soil of the people in Galilee. And God providentially drove Jesus from his hometown back to his hometown to display something about God's divine compassion for his people. But he says he was there in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. That's interesting. There's a word that's missing in verse 14 that was predominant in verse 13. Immediately. Jesus didn't go immediately from the temptation into Galilee. In Mark 1, 9-14, what we see is we see Jesus entering into His Public preaching ministry for the very first time, historically. Public proclamation was coming forth from Jesus. He's moving from obscurity into publicity. He's moving out into that ministry. And it appears in this text that Jesus went straight from the temptation into public preaching. But that's not the case at all. In Mark 1.14, we need to understand something. Mark 1.14 comes a year after Jesus was baptized and tempted in the desert. This was a year gap between verse 13 and 14 that we're looking at. And you don't know that unless you look at a synoptic view of the Gospels. You don't know that if you don't study the other text. But if you actually go and you look at one of the Gospels that are very important for this, you understand there's some blanks that can be filled in in this time period. What was going on? What was happening with Jesus? It wasn't a public preaching ministry he was involved in. He was in a private, personal ministry. Now, I think that personal, private ministry was essential to his preaching ministry. Because I think that your personal, private ministry is essential to your ministry also. It leads to credibility. It leads to compassion that people can see when you come to them and proclaim directly and firmly The gospel that you say is changing you personally. I think Jesus displays that himself. He spends a year expressing his compassion personally as a testimony. So that when he proclaims it directly, and I would say in a confrontational way, people actually believe this man is compassionate toward them. He has the best of intentions for us. But the gospel of John fills in the blanks for us here. So I want us to follow Christ historically from Mark to John this morning. If you look with me in John's gospel, John 1, this will feel much more like a Bible study at this point, but John 1, 43. In John 1, 43, John shows us that Jesus returned 
to his hometown, his home area, Galilee, after he was baptized. Look what it says in 143. The next day, this is after he was baptized, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He decided to go to Galilee. And it speaks of him finding Philip and saying to him, follow me. And he, he goes through this list of others. Now, what you see going on here, what you need to understand is this is him, him making a brief visit back to his home area. And there he's actually going to call men to salvation in this first visit back to Galilee. The second visit back to Galilee that we'll see in Mark's gospel next time will be when Jesus calls them to discipleship. He calls his disciples. But in, two, in John 2, 13, we not only find out that Jesus has returned to Galilee, we see in 2, 13 that after a brief ministry in Galilee, Jesus is going to go up to, he went up to Jerusalem in 2, 13. This is going to give you a sort of a tracing out of his path here. In 2.13, it says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He was in Galilee, his hometown, after his baptism. Now it says that the Passover had come, and so he goes up to Jerusalem. Now, we know there's a year that passes by because actually in John 5, I believe it is, he speaks about the second Passover that Jesus goes to. And it was during that time period we know that a year transpired. But if you look at 4, chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, you can see that after Jesus went up to Jerusalem, he briefly ministered in Judea, and then he returned back to Galilee, and he did so by going through Samaria. And I think he went through Samaria because, again, there was some cultivated ground in Samaria that God had prepared for him. Understand, Jesus is in the hard soil of Jerusalem, exposing their sin. And they're not receiving him. They're hating him. He knows if he stays there, he knows what Jerusalem leads to. It leads to the cross. But he also knows he has a ministry to fulfill before the cross, which is God's divine compassion toward outcasts. So he goes to Samaria. Here in 4.1 it says, Then Jesus, or when Jesus, learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And there we know the story. He confronts the woman at the well in her sin. What I love about that is, again, it's another example. He comes to this woman. Yes, he is sensitive to her cultural mores, what's going on in her life. He doesn't change the message a bit. He confronts her in her sin. He calls her on her sin. He exposes her sin. And that is the most compassionate thing that Jesus could do for her. Because at that point, she was exposed. She was laid bare before God. God's word exposed her. And then she ran back and became an evangelist. In her community, because God had shown her mercy. But again, back here in this text, in the historical setting, what we see happening is a period of a year has passed by. Now, think about this. Jesus' ministry is about a three and a half year ministry. And a year of it was spent doing personal and private ministry, not just the preaching ministry. It was a time here of private and personal ministry, and I think it laid the foundation Again, for his public proclamation of God's compassion through preaching that we see in Mark 1.14. 
This, this time period, I think, displayed Jesus' personal compassion as God's anointed one. God's Messiah was actually concerned about God's people. And He pursued them in love. He served them in love. He served as a slave to those who should be serving Him. This period displayed that. It displayed God's personal compassion through His Messiah. And it also, I think, exposed and displayed the religious callousness in Jerusalem and Judea. I think it displayed that when He came to His own, His own people would not have Him. He turned from them. He repented, if you will, of Jerusalem. And He went to Galilee, where the hearts were soft by God's grace. He went there to display grace personally. John's Gospel tells us that. It tells us that during the year after Jesus' baptism, that Jesus was preparing for His preaching and public ministry by privately and personally displaying God's love and compassion and His own personal authority. He displayed it in Galilee, He displayed it in Jerusalem, and He displayed it in Judea. This is very important for Jesus' ministry. When Jesus comes to preach, what do they say about Jesus' preaching? He is one who speaks as with authority. Well, the people in all these regions actually saw Jesus' authority in different ways, personally and privately, before he ever preached about it publicly. We see that in John 1. Go with me back to John 1. In John 1, 39 through 45, we see Jesus displaying His authority personally in Galilee. Look what it says. This is a personal revelation of His authority. It's a personal display of His authority in Galilee. And He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where He was staying, and they stayed with Him that day, for it was the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he first found our, his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. This is the divine command here. This is going to display his authority, okay? Follow me, he says. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi or teacher, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus is displaying something here in pursuing these men, in calling these men, in exposing these men to His very presence. He is showing them that He has authority over their lives, over their minds, over their souls. 
He displays his authority and his irresistible call and command for them to come to him. And he reveals himself to them supernaturally. He is displaying this personally in these interactions with these men, Nathaniel and Andrew and Peter. He calls them. Again, it's a, it's a public or a personal, rather, display of his authority, his power, his compassion. He pursues them. He pursues his own disciples. They don't pursue him, which is very interesting. It's a reflection of how he pursued us, is it not? He commands us with an irresistible call. He pursues us because we could not pursue him. Now, in John 2, 1 through 12, we see Jesus display his authority privately in Galilee. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And said to them, and he said to them, rather, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now became wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who drawn the water had known, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Again, Jesus is displaying his authority at a private gathering in Galilee, and as a result of that, People saw his authority as the creator. They they saw his authority here in this private and personal setting. He is establishing a foundation here in these acts of compassion, these acts of deity even here, as he reveals his glory through this miracle. He is showing them personally who is coming to preach to them publicly in the future has authority over their souls, over creation, and over everything. Now, when we move to John... 3, in John 4, again, we see Jesus moving from Judea to Samaria and then back to Galilee. 3.22 simply points this out. It says this, after this, after these things had happened, after he actually had another personal confrontation with Nicodemus here, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Then if you jump over to 4, Again, what we read earlier, 4.3, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee and had to pass through Samaria. So we see him moving back to Galilee via Samaria. In this move, what we, I think, see ultimately is we see God sending forth his messenger with the compassion that he displayed privately. He's sending him forth now publicly to show compassion through his preaching ministry in Galilee. And I think he's also, by sending him away from Jerusalem and Judea, he's also indicting this region and saying, these self-righteous hypocrites, 
will not listen. So I will turn to the people that I have prepared, to the soil that has been cultivated. Jerusalem and Judea were actually much happier when Jesus left. They were happy that he left because he was exposing their self-righteousness, their hypocrisy. We have to face this all the time. We deal with religious people. They are almost inoculated to the gospel. They think because they've been in church their entire life that they're Christians. We must come to them and we must confront their sin. We must lovingly show them that by God's grace, they need to be saved, not through their works, but through Christ's righteousness. We need to display that, but it's hard to do that. It's hard to confront religious people. It's hard to confront them and tell them they might not be saved just because they went to church their whole life. And when you do this, you be prepared for the same reaction that Jesus received. It may be anger and attack that comes your way. Jesus knew that would happen in Jerusalem had he stayed there. It did come eventually. Jesus knew that Jerusalem would not be the place of his reception. It would be the place of his execution because he was exposing their sin. I had this illustrated to me yesterday by God's providence. I was studying, I was preparing, trying to go over my notes this morning for this morning's sermon. And as I was preparing, this little car drives up and I know who it is immediately when they get out with their watchtower and track society papers. And I thought, I have a short time because the church is more important than this. I need to prepare my sermon. However, God used this to prepare me. And so I thought, you know, the, the best thing to do, the most loving thing I can do for these people is confront them in their error immediately because they're idolatrous. They're following the watchtower, not God, not Jehovah. And so I immediately drove to the cross, immediately drove to the authority of Jesus, to his deity. And they immediately became angry, jumped in their car and left. They would not listen. They would not take correction. They would not take it even when I was trying to show them through intentional compassion and sympathy for them, I still had to get to the heart of the matter, which is their corrupt thinking, their dead, depraved religion. And it had to be exposed. I had to call the watchtower what it is, which is a cult. I had to expose it. And I had to say that there is only one that we should follow, which would not be the watchtower. It would be Christ. We should not be surprised when we receive the same kind of response that Jesus received when he did that in his ministry. He knew that if he stayed in his public preaching ministry and he pursued it there in Jerusalem, that he would face nothing more than attacks and conflicts every time he turned around. So God in his grace turns him and brings him to a people that were prepared, to a people who didn't think that they were righteous. They knew they were outcasts. They felt the shunning of Jerusalem. They didn't have that self-righteous attitude that Israel had as a whole. They knew they needed a redeemer. They knew they needed salvation. And so God in his compassion sends Jesus there to begin his preaching. That's what we see happening in Mark 1.14. That's where we pick up our first point in the sermon today. In Mark 1.14 we learn that, number one, God's divine messenger was delivering divine compassion And he did so by preaching, by preaching to outcasts and to sinners, those that God had prepared to hear this message. When I say preaching, the word in the text here, we'll look at more next time, but the word is proclamation. Everyone who knows this message can 
proclaim it. And God chose that to be the means of His grace to sinners. He would take a person who's been conformed by, God, by God's grace in the gospel, He would take that person, He would pour into you the glorious gospel of Christ so that you would proclaim it and the glory would belong to Him. But He called you to do it with compassion, to show people God's love and mercy personally and to display it exegetically. People aren't saved because we're compassionate. People are saved because God opens their eyes to the revelation of His grace and His Word. We must show compassion and we must declare truth in our proclamation. That's what Jesus did. That's why He had the personal that preceded the public. But What what I think is, is amazing here, this is actually what Jesus Himself considers to be the most important thing in His ministry. Jesus is a preacher. Jesus' first public act of compassion towards sinners was through preaching God's good news. Jesus himself considers this to be the predominant purpose of his coming into the earth, at least in his human active ministry. He will die ultimately as a result of the message he's proclaiming. He's the greatest messenger proclaiming the greatest message about himself. He preached Christ and himself crucified because he knew that's what men needed to hear. He knew that men thought that they were okay. He knows that man thinks that we can earn our way toward God. And yet he came and he lovingly showed us compassion by ripping that out from under us. Jesus didn't do it harshly. Now he rebuked the self-righteous harshly. But he reached out to those who were lost in their sins thinking that they could try to do something because that's what they are told. That's what they have known apart from his revelation, thinking they can do something to earn God's favor. He came to them and said, no, you cannot, but I can. Listen to my message. I think it's important that we follow his pattern, his method here. He established his testimony of compassion personally up front, and then he proclaimed it publicly, and it gave weight to his message. That's something we need to learn, I think, as a church. This is an important method for us to follow as we minister to those in our community. We must first learn to practice the gospel that we've received personally. Put it into application. Put love, forgiveness, and grace into application in our personal ministry and then preach that message publicly when we do evangelism. We don't want to ever undermine our gospel message by our arrogant behavior. We never want to speak about the doctrines of grace unless we do it with grace. You know, it, it undermines the very message we proclaim if we are these hateful doctrinal people. But if we come to them and we don't back away from doctrine, but we lovingly confront them and walk with them in compassion and say, this is God's grace to you. If you don't see your sins, you can't see the Savior. You need to have that stripped away that's blinding you, which is your self-righteousness. And that only comes to the revelation of God's Word, proclaimed. That's what Jesus did. That's what it says in 1.14. He came speaking truth and grace. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. It is the only gospel is what he means here. It is the only message, again, given by God about God. It is divinely given. 
And it has divine power to transform sinners. And he comes and he proclaims it directly. And what this means, this word proclaim here, it means to shout loudly. It literally means when he came back after his personal ministry in these other regions, he prepared their hearts. God had worked through his private ministry by showing his authority over man and over creation. It prepared them for when he would walk back into this region and he began to command them with urgency, with boldness, with openness to turn from their sins and turn to God's mercy. Trust in him. I think sometimes we don't realize what this was like. This is what Jonah was called to do. When he went back into the city of Nineveh and he began to loudly proclaim in the streets, Jesus is literally walking through these regions and bellering this truth. He is not holding anything back. There's a sense of urgency because he's going to say, the kingdom is at hand, which implies judgment is coming. The king is here, so the kingdom must be here too. You need to listen to these words from the king, he's saying. But he doesn't start this until John the Baptist decreased. We see that in this text. He doesn't start proclaiming this message with this kind of boldness publicly until the words of John come to pass when John said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Well, God providentially put John in the position in the rebuke of Herod for his adultery that caused John to be shelved, put into prison, arrested. He decreased. His public ministry ceased. Jesus increased. And a greater messenger than John stepped onto the scene, proclaiming God's gospel to man, to people who are in darkness. That's where we pick up in 114. He came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Again, what we see is, is Jesus is coming as God's divine messenger, and he's coming with a divine purpose. He's coming to preach. This is God's ordained means of reaching the hearts of sinners. It's through a perfect preacher here. We know that, but here's the good news for us. Though we're not the perfect preachers, we have the perfect preacher's message. He gave it to us. It's inscripturated. It never changes. It still holds the same power that it held for Jesus. And you can wield it today. You can proclaim with authority these words as Christ did publicly. He came, according to Mark 1, look what Mark 1 says, 115. He came for this purpose. This was Jesus' ultimate reason for coming. He came to illuminate people to God's will, to God's word and their sin. He came to expose. He came to open up the minds of sinners and show that God had to come in and cleanse them. Look what it says in 115. It says, And saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So he's implying that they're sinners and they need to turn from something and trust in something. And then he says, as he proclaimed this, he passed alongside the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And then it says this, 
And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. He says, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to gather up my disciples. I'm going to show them what my mission is. My mission is to teach. I gathered my disciples, and I immediately came on on the Sabbath day and began to teach. That is his mission. That is his method. God's divine method of compassion is through preaching. It's through teaching about what God is like, what man is like, what God has provided in Christ. If you look further down in Mark 1, verse 29, you can see that Jesus makes it very clear that he came for this very purpose. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. The reason that happened was, previous to this, he had healed others, and now everyone heard about what he had done and heard about his teaching. And so now they're coming down here, and they're finding him at Peter's mother-in-law's house. And he says in verse 34 of 33, the whole city was gathered together at the door and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, many people focus in on this. Jesus came to do these miracles. He did. Those were miracles to authenticate his authority over supernatural things, over nature. But that is not what brought men salvation. Healing does not save people's souls. Only spiritual regeneration changes the condition of our soul. And that comes through preaching, not through the healing of cancer or heart disease. Okay, Not that God cannot. God can and often does the miraculous that we can't even explain. And that is to His glory. But that doesn't save people. It's the proclamation, the object of truth about what he has done in Christ that saves people. He says in verse 35, Jesus makes it really clear here that the miracles aren't why he came. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach. That I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. That is why I came out of those regions. That is why I came into Galilee. I came to preach the glorious good news that comes from God. And church, you're called to follow this pattern. This method. You have been called out. You have been set apart to go out and proclaim this message. You do not have the power to heal anyone. You do not have the power to save anyone. But you have been given the Word of God that does have the power of God unto salvation contained in it, in this spiritual seed. God's Word can convert the soul. And it's God's Word that you can carry And proclaim as Christ did. Again, He did it in a perfect way without sin, yet we still know that it's a perfect message that's given to us that we can proclaim as long as we follow Scripture. Now, 
Again, that is God's divine method of mercy. It comes through this preaching ministry that we've all been given. And that again comes through a proclamation of truth about God, His holiness, and our fallen condition. Again, this is good news to me because this means that all of us, no matter if you're talking to a Jehovah's Witness or an atheist or a religious fanatic in Islam, you can all preach to them the same message with the same authority and the same power. You do not have to be a specialist in in these religions and cults and isms. You just need to be a specialist in the truth. You need to fill your heart and your mind with the revelation of God. Hide it deeply in your heart. God will give you the opportunities to display it and to share it and publicly proclaim it. But you don't have to manipulate people to get this done. You just follow Christ's example and you proclaim. You preach. You teach. You talk to people about the gospel. You want to know how to be an effective evangelist? Read the word. Study the word. Share the word. Explain the word. Tell people about what God said. You don't have to be creative. You come back to the foundational truth that Jesus proclaimed and said, this is what God says about us. We'll look at one of those in a moment. I think what we learn from Jesus' ministry in Mark, at least what I learn as I'm studying this, is that Jesus understood something important about His ministry. He understood that the message is what God has ordained to bring people to salvation. He also understood that some soil is providentially cultivated by God to receive God's seed more than other soil. He knows that some soil is cultivated by God in order to bear the fruit of repentance and faith. And all we're called to do, and all He was called to do even, at that point in His humanity, was to proclaim or broadcast that seed. And the seed is the Word of God. And you and I can do the same thing today. But you need to be aware that some soil is prepared to receive it, and some are not. It's not our judgment call to figure out which one's which. We go. When God providentially opens the door like He did in Galilee, we go. We proclaim it. We cast the seed. God does the work. God brings the increase. We have to remember that so we don't grow discouraged in our evangelism. God grants what is necessary for that soil to receive the message and produce the fruit of repentance and faith. God is working. God is working while we throw the seed accurately and faithfully. God is already at work preparing the soil to receive it. What what I think this is important for is this. If you know that and you believe that and you trust in that, you you don't have to be discouraged and you don't have to be tempted to change your message. You don't have to be discouraged when there's hard hearted people who won't receive it. You can just be faithful to the message that you receive from Christ and proclaim it. You don't have to soften it. You don't have to shave off the hard edges because you think men won't like it. You just remember to follow Jesus' example and handle it accurately and do it with compassion. God's messenger never changed God's message. No matter who he went to, no matter what culture, no matter what kind of people he went to, he never changed the essential truths of the gospel. He proclaimed it clearly. He didn't try to make men comfortable. I mean, he's coming into the world saying the kingdom is at hand. That means you have a king to submit to. That's not an easy message. Because he's saying, you're a rebellious servant. You need to turn away from your rebellion and you need to turn to the king and trust in him. He didn't 
concern himself with making them comfortable. He was concerned with showing compassion to them. What they needed to know was they are accountable to God. I don't think he ignored their issues. I don't think he ignored their cultural settings, but he didn't set his ministry based on how to make people comfortable. He set his ministry on how to glorify God and see people brought to a saving knowledge of God. He didn't compromise his ministry. He didn't compromise his witness. He didn't compromise his holiness. He didn't shave off the edges of the gospel message. And we can't either. You know, sometimes people think in the time we live in that you have to be culturally relevant. You have to contextualize the message so you have to basically live like the culture that you're trying to reach. And by doing that, you ultimately compromise your holiness. You compromise your witness. And we don't have to do that. We don't have to become like the world for the world to like us and hear us. Jesus shows us that the world didn't like him much at all. But they heard him because he had authority. And he showed the compassion of God by declaring it and proclaiming it. We don't have to become like the world to do this. We have to go into the world and reflect the ministry of Jesus. That's what we're called to do. Jesus shows us his love in his preaching. In his preaching, he exposed man to God's holiness. He exposed our sinfulness. And the Apostle Paul followed his pattern, his method. And again, I think that this is the method that we need to follow. Look what Romans 3 says. Romans 3 gives us a pattern that the Apostle Paul, I believe, used more than once. But we know he used it at least once. But I believe it was more than once because what he did here in this proclamation was he explained the gospel. He exposed men to God's view of them. He exposed men to God's revelation of himself in the glorious gospel that God sent to them. Look what it says here in 3.9. Here's Paul's method of evangelism. Here's Paul's method of ministry. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Okay, he walks in and he's talking to the people at Rome. And he's explaining to them as he's going out and he's going to share this message, I think, publicly as well. Like Jesus explaining everyone is under sin. That means everyone is an offender. Everyone has offended God. And immediately he knows how people will respond because we read that in Romans 9, how people respond. They begin to question God. But he says, I know you're going to respond with a self-righteous attitude. You think, you think that you are good, but I've got to tell you the truth. There are no good people. And we, we, we live in, a, again, a culture just like this today. The majority of people you know think they're good. And your call is to make sure they know the truth about their spiritual condition. To do that, you have to follow God's method, which is to expose them to God's revelation. So Paul does that in verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. This completely strips away the Arminian theology that people are surrounded in in our culture. We come to them and say, you think that you seek God apart from God seeking you? How blasphemous. How arrogant. God sees you for who you are. You are a depraved, wicked sinner, dead in sins, incapable and unwilling to come to Him. 
That's what God says about us all. He says in verse 12, all have turned aside. You haven't even tried to come to God. You've actually went the other way. Even in your self-righteousness, you said you don't need His righteousness, so you'll achieve it on your own. So you've turned aside together. They've all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, though it doesn't sound like it and though it doesn't feel like it, Paul is following God's directions here to show compassion to sinners by exposing their sinful condition according to God's word. He is following the method of Jesus here. He is showing them that there is nothing in them holy, that they need a holiness that's outside of them. They need a rescue. They need salvation. That is the most loving thing we can do as Christians when we minister to others. We cannot comfort people in their self-righteousness and in their religion. You must expose them to the reality from God's perspective of what their soul is like apart from sovereign mercy and grace. So Paul goes on to do that in verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So he's simply saying there that not by keeping any rules or commandments can you be justified in the sight of God. One, you can't do it. And two, if you think you are, you're self-righteous and you're blind. You cannot fulfill these from the heart. The law just exposes your fallenness. No human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But here's the good news. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace or declared righteous or right in His sight by His gift, by His grace as a gift through the purchase or the redemption that is in Christ, whom God put forward as an appeasement offering or a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And he's, what He's doing here is He's saying, you thought you could do this on your own, yet you were corrupt and defiled and could never achieve righteousness apart from what God has done for you in Christ. This is the good news. But He had to expose them to the bad news first. They needed to be stripped bare so they would receive the good news of God's grace. And here's the great news about this message. It's received by faith and faith alone. You don't have to be good to earn faith. You can't be good enough to earn faith. The only one who ever could be faithful was Jesus because He was without sin. He stood in our place. He brought us faith. He showed us what God's grace was like. He says in verse 25, This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The one who has faith in Jesus is the one who is received by God. Not faith in your works, not faith in your religion, not faith in your goodness or self-righteous view of yourself. That has to be stripped away by revelation through Scripture. It has to be exposed. You have to be exposed to this truth in order to see the greatness of God's grace. If you don't see the depth of your sin, you cannot see the height of His grace. It is impossible. But God in His mercy comes to us and shows us what we are really like in Scripture. And He commands us as Christians to follow this message, follow this method as we evangelize others. We have to also do this knowing that God is going ahead. God is the one preparing the hearts to receive the message. God does the work while we, again, are just being called to faithfulness, proclaiming the message. We don't change it. We don't distort it. We believe in it. I actually believe, and I hope you do too, I actually believe as I share the gospel with people and I talk to them in a personal way, I care about them in a personal way, and I share this message, I actually have trust in that message to convert and regenerate their soul. I don't have any confidence in my ability to manipulate them. I don't have any confidence in my ability to make you come back here next week. I still trust in God's Word to draw you, to make you have a hunger and thirst for righteousness so that you come and find it and are satisfied in it through the hearing and preaching of His Word. That's where my confidence lies. Confidence doesn't lie in myself or any other preacher except Jesus. Again, He was the perfect preacher. And He has the perfect message and the perfect method for us to follow. It's not that complicated. And if you, as a form of study this afternoon, if you'll look in Matthew 5, if you look at Matthew 5, 1 through 20, I think you'll see how Jesus displayed God's compassion beautifully through a message that transcends culture and time because it's the gospel of God. You read this text, and I think you'll be amazed because when you read it, you'll see in verse 3 that Jesus preaches that only those who see their spiritual poverty will inherit the kingdom of heaven. What he's doing is he's going to explain the gospel through this. And you and I can preach this same message that Jesus preached on the mount. In verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, what he's saying is, here's how you know that you're going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. You will see your spiritual poverty. You will see your spiritual bankrupt condition. You have nothing to bring to God. Only those who have been exposed to their poverty spiritually will enter into the kingdom of God. Only those who have had that view given to them by the God who showed them their salvation can actually enter into His kingdom. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, Jesus preaches that only those who mourn over their sinful condition can find comfort in God's forgiveness. You cannot come to God if you're not mourning over sin, if you're not repentant. He's saying if you've been shown the poverty of your soul, then you will ah and Praise God for that revelation, and then you will mourn over that revelation. You will mourn over your spiritual condition, and you will come to God for forgiveness. Not try to achieve it on your own. Verse 5, it says that blessed are those, or the meek, 
for they shall inherit the earth. His message here is that only those who trust in God's might, not their might, those who are meek, will inherit the promises of the earth. Promises that are given to those who will dwell on the earth in God's millennial kingdom. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That is a fantastic promise. What he's doing is he's moving us in verse 3 to verse 6 through our spiritual impoverishment to our riches that come through Christ. That's the gospel. You should be able to take a person through the Beatitudes and lead them to Christ. Show them the glory of God in Christ. Show them the the corrupt condition of our souls so that when they hear you preach like Jesus here in verse 6, they will hear that only those who hunger and thirst for righteousness that comes from God's provision will find eternal satisfaction and eternal life. Only those who have had their spiritual condition exposed will hunger for a righteousness that comes outside of themselves. And that righteousness, we can tell them with confidence, comes through the person and work of Jesus. Jesus lived in obedience for us. He died as a propitiation for us, a full payment to redeem us from the curse, to fulfill God's justice against our sin. God's wrath was poured out on Him and His righteousness was imputed to us. And now we need to go out and proclaim that message to others so that we glorify God and we do good and show compassion towards sinners. You're created to do good works. And I, I, you know, we can talk about good works in all different ways as Christians. Good works can be simply helping people in need physically and tangibly, okay? That's a good work. But if that good work doesn't lead to the good work of proclaiming an object of truth about their condition and God's grace and their need of forgiveness, then you've just physically helped that person on their way to hell and condemnation. You're called to do good works. And the greatest of the good works that you're called to do is to proclaim the gospel like Jesus. Jesus did good works, did he not? He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He had compassion on those who were weary. But he proclaimed to them God's gospel ultimately. And then he lived God's gospel personally. And he shows that to us so that we can follow in his pattern. We can proclaim his work to others. Again, with confidence and with compassion. But again, it has to be done scripturally. Biblically, we have to have our confidence built on the truth. The truth can cut where our manipulation can never penetrate. You can try to do the old thing of uh, friend evangelism where you try to befriend somebody and, and basically pretend to be their friend so that one day you might slip in the gospel. And all you've done is you've undermined the power of the gospel and you've actually basically displayed you weren't a true friend of this person either. You're saying the gospel's not enough. And I really don't care about this person that much. The reason we don't evangelize, church, the reason we don't evangelize like we ought to, and I'm speaking for me and you, is of selfishness. We're afraid people won't like us. We want people to like us. And we think if we push the gospel on them, they might not like us anymore. And we lose something. But Jesus said you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and die to selfishness. 
for the sake of His glory and the good of others. Pursue them. Let them shun you. That's fine. But if you let them shun you after you've proclaimed this message, they have an eternal word from God that will never go away. It'll never change. That's one of the glorious truths about preaching and proclamation. Once a human soul is exposed to God's revelation, that is an eternal message, a supernatural message that can never leave them, no matter what happens. It is beyond human understanding. It is supernatural. It is a supernatural seed that Peter calls it that will be freshly cultivated by God one day, we pray, to bring them salvation. But we understand this. When we have these conversations, if we keep the conversation centered on Christ, proclaiming it the way He did it, with boldness and with compassion, people may shun us, but they can never forget the message. Jerusalem and Judea, they remembered Jesus' message when He came back there to crucify Him. They crucified Him because of His message. Because of His revealed authority. Because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. That's why they crucified Him. They remembered the message that He preached. They remembered the public and the private ministry that He displayed. And listen, when you and I pass away, which we will, we're all passing, some faster than others. But when we pass away, it really won't matter whether they remember us or not. But if we've been faithful to our God and they remember the message that we have proclaimed, He will be exalted and they will be saved. So just be faithful to follow Jesus' message and His method. And we'll look at this more in detail through verse 14b and 15 next time we get together. But we'll see in it that there is a distinct calling upon us as a church to emulate Christ. We don't need to emulate the world. We need to follow His directions here in the Word. All right, let's pray.